0: Welcome to the Truth Matters podcast, a guide to misinformation. I'm Shen Creavy, the head of editorial at Kinsen, and I'm your host.
1: And I'm Della Kilroy, a journalist with RT, and I'm also your host. This is a four part podcast series exploring how misinformation spreads in an era of mass communication and how you can protect yourself against it.
0: If you missed the last episode, we looked at the basics of all this, the differences between this and misinformation, uh, motivations that some people have in spreading this false information online, and the psychology behind why we unwittingly share it sometimes.
1: An increasing problem now in this digital era is losing friends or family to Conspiracy theories, they might have gone down the rabbit hole. Lots of people are now wondering how to deal with this. So, in this episode, the second of four, we're looking at how to talk to friends who believe in conspiracy theories. We know the conspiracy theories are tearing families apart. We've seen this throughout the pandemic, as well as in recent elections. Shane, what do we know about QAnon first in particular? Because this started in the US, but it's really spread globally.
0: QAnon is this strange patchwork of many different conspiracies. But to sum it up, These people genuinely believe that Donald Trump is battling a secret global elite of paedophiles and child torturers. Of course, those people that they say are doing this all just happen to be Trump's political enemies. So people like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden are regularly the focus of related conspiracies within the movement. But it's always evolving. It's always changing. It grew grew a lot during the pandemic. And that's why Aoife is a really interesting person to talk to.
1: Eva Gallagher has been monitoring the spread of this kind of false information. She's an analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where she's working in the digital research team, focusing on disinformation. The organization is a nonprofit think tank looking at far right extremism and conspiracy theories and in part exploring the strategies used to recruit people online.
0: Yeah, and IFA, who we should say is a former colleague of ours in, a, in Storyful, uh, when we first spoke to her, she first told us what she's come to learn about the nature of conspiracy theories, especially uh, from the
2: pandemic and what she's seen online over the last year. In general, I suppose, you know, conspiracy theories tend to kind of arise from shocking world events. Um, so think about the the assassination of JFK or the 9-11. You know, these were all, you know, big moments that conspiracy theories arose from kind of over the years. So the fact that there's conspiracy theories around about the pandemic is not really, it's not really shocking, to be honest, or surprising. It, it, I think they'd be around anyway. What's really different, I suppose, about this era is the fact that um, the Internet kind of makes these conspiracy theories theories so accessible, Um, they're spread almost immediately. I mean, conspiracy theories kind of of like come out pretty much at the same time as an event and are spread at the same time. And what leads people into these is kind of a combination of, of different things, really times when people are Angry, fearful t- t- times when people are massively distrusting of institutions. Um, all these kind of um, will drive people into conspiracy theories, because what they tend to do is kind of play on, on these emotions. You know, people that are have been very, very disaffected by the lockdowns, maybe business owners that have lost their businesses, you know, people who have seen this, seen the lockdowns really affect in their lives but maybe haven't seen COVID effect in their lives. I think that that's a big part of it as well. So in general, they tend to kind of give people back a sense of control as well that that, that many people have lost during the pandemic. So, I mean, we have kind of lost control of a lot of aspects of our lives with the lockdowns. And so conspiracy theories tend to kind of give people um, often fairly simplified answers to very complicated um, kind of issues. So if you take you know covid and the pandemic you know just just as an example i suppose in order to understand you know how a virus kind of is able to do what it what it does you need to have a level of expertise but What conspiracy theories tend to do is kind of strip away all that nuance and all that kind of difficult to the the things that are difficult to understand and instead kind of put forward a a simplified narrative as to why things are happening. And most of the time that kind of revolves around the idea that people in authority are lying to you so that they'll kind of put forward the idea that governments around the world are lying or governments around the world are colluding and lying to their populations. Um, that the media is all part of this as well, that um, they're involved in Nefit are also involved in that. You know, if you're already distrustful of your government and then, you know, things like, you know, Golfgate or the, the the vaccines in the Beacon Hospital, things like that, anything that really kind of puts forward the 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 divide between the working class and the elite class really, really feeds into this as well. Um, and once you kind of, you know, believe that the media is lying to you and the government's lying to you and and everyone else is lying to you, it's very easy to kind of fit other conspiracy narratives into that narrative. I've seen people that may have fallen into these communities a year ago that are now believing in things like chemtrails Um, and you know so it kind of they tend to go further and further down the rabbit hole which is kind of yeah what tends to happen.
0: So Aoife could you just tell me a little bit about the nature of of the type of misinformation that you see you said at the top that you focus on far-right misinformation. Do you see examples of this uh, on the left-wing aspect too? What's your response to someone who says that, oh, all this research is only focusing on, right-wing extremism and nothing else.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, obviously my expertise is on on far-right extremism. If you look at something like, take something like QAnon, for example. QAnon has obviously, you know, just absolutely exploded in the past year. It was always something that was kind of still, um, you know, would have been a fringe movement, I suppose, up until 2020. One of the big things that happened in the middle of the summer of 2020, and this happened when the social media platforms started um, kind of banning the use of QAnon on hashtags, um, and so what happened is that the QAnon movement kind of made a concerted effort to dilute down QAnon content, and they did this, one of the more successful ways they did this was by by co-opting the Save the Children hashtag, um, which was something that of course was being used by a a legitimate child trafficking organization. Um, And so the social media companies were in a pickle, do they ban this legitimate hashtag because it's been used by QAnon or do they not? Um, But what this diluting down of content did was it kind of um, spread QAnon into communities where it hadn't really filtered into yet, namely kind of the wellness influence Influencer kind of communities on Instagram, um, and that's simply because they kind of stripped away a lot of the political um, narratives, I suppose, of QAnon and focused instead of trying to advocate for the safety of children, which is obviously something that is, you know, it's a it's a tried and tested kind of a, a, a narrative within far right conspiracy theories is to advocate for the safety of children. But what this did, I suppose, was meant that, you know, up until 2020, you would have been fairly certain that QAnon would have been something that only appealed to, you know, Republican voters and right wing voters in, in the US. But it spreaded out into ideologies and kind of just across the, the political ideological spectrum, I suppose, to the point that you couldn't necessarily say that QAnon was a far right conspiracy theory because the people that were involved in the QAnon movement were not necessarily far right, but they've been duped pretty much into believing far right conspiracy theories without even realising that as well. Um, and that's kind of, you know, almost similar to what happened as well with, um with the the pandemic and the anti-lockdown movements. If you kind of think about pre-2020, you know, there were anti-vaccine communities online, there were anti-5G communities online. They would not necessarily have been deemed far right. You know, they kind of would have been something that would have been more associated, I suppose, with, with the left and kind of with an anti-establishment kind of a, a viewpoint and things like that. And then when COVID hit, they all kind of came together. The main kind of groups that were really fanning the flames of this in Ireland especially were the were the far right groups and, and still are the far right groups. Uh, and I suppose it's it's understandable really why they why a lot of people in the anti-lockdown movement are, you know, get very, very angry by reports that they're extremists or that they're far right. But at the end of the day, it is the far right movements that are Going to gain from from these kind of uh, movements as well, um, because you know far right movements have used conspiracy theories for decades um, in order to to push their agendas. Even if you go back to you know anti-semitic conspiracy theories that kind of went around before and during world war ii that kind of led to the holocaust conspiracy theories are the far right's greatest weapon in a lot of ways they really really work to erode people's trust in their institutions and to turn people completely away from um, establishment politics and that's their their main aim i suppose
1: how would you then i suppose speak to someone who is believing or sharing
2: information that you know to be false? Um, I think it obviously depends on how far people are down these rabbit holes. You know, if someone's just kind of dabbling in you know, a, a bit of misinformation here and there. They mightn't, you know, fully believe that the media is completely lying to, to you. So you may be able to counter them with facts in, in that kind of a situation. But for the most part, if people are really down, down these rabbit holes and they believe that everyone's lying to them, countering with, with facts doesn't work, unfortunately. From what I can see, in order to kind of get people out of this, there does need to be a compassionate approach to it. And that does tend to be very hard, especially when you're coming up against people who, no matter what kind of facts you present them with, they have a way to rationalize it and they have a way to kind of tell you why they don't think that's true. There's a couple of different things I suppose you can do. In general, people who believe in conspiracy theories tend to think that they have a higher level of critical thinking than than the regular person does. But what this critical thinking often involves is just a complete dismissal of anything that they think is mainstream. Um, but you can also use this Sense of higher critical thinking to get them to examine what they're believing, um, get them to examine the sources. So, I mean, th- they might say that someone like, you know, the Irish Times or RTE have an agenda or whatever it is, but get them to examine whether their sources have an agenda. I often think getting them to think about the actual actual intricacies of what would be involved if a conspiracy theory was true. So, I mean, take for example something like Bill Gates is, you know, secretly, you know, trying to implant um, microchips in it, which is a very common conspiracy theory that's been going around now for the past year. But in order for that to be true, you have to also believe that, you know, every doctor that's given the vaccine is lying to you, every pharmacist, every nurse, everyone in the media that's talking about the, the vaccines is lying to you. So in general, you kind of have to believe that the vast majority of the world is lying uh, like on a continuous basis all the time. And I think if you get people to really examine whether they think things like that are happening, I think that could definitely be useful um, as a way to, to kind of counter that.
1: One of the challenges, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, was we saw a lot of this kind of information spread on Facebook or WhatsApp on closed networks where people said they know knew someone's mother's cousin was in the army or in the school or that they'd all be closed. How mm. do you tackle that kind of thing where where people believe that they trust the source because they believe it's a, a friend of a friend of a friend?
2: or When you talk about the communities that the anti-lockdown movement kind of, um, where they kind of converse online, um, there is this sense of believing that, that you're going to believe information that comes from your peers more than you're going to believe information from people that you don't necessarily know. But I think, again, it's, it's about just getting them to examine that source and being like, OK, so your your aunt says this, but, you know, what, where is her expertise in actually knowing this? You know, so it's just about getting people to just stop and think for a minute and think about where the information is coming from and think about whether that source is actually an expert in what they're talking about um, and where their source got their information from um, in a lot of ways it's kind of like thinking like a journalist <laughs> I suppose yes more
0: of that thinking like a
2: journalist
1: <laughs> so Eva says we all need to think like journalists but it can be challenging in everyday life especially for people who might I suppose already have issues with trusting the mainstream media
0: yeah and to try to help I suppose bring this to light even more we've actually been speaking to someone who's been badly impacted by this and by QAnon His name is Jatarth Jadeja, he's living in Australia, and when we spoke to him, he first told us what initially led him to distrust mainstream media.
3: I guess it kind of started with weapons of mass destruction, Um, like I'm old enough to remember September 11, when that turned out to be false, and then it just sort of slowly built up from there. Uh, It really escalated when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were vying for the um, Democratic nominee, because... WikiLeaks released um, the John Podesta emails and it was essentially just showing how the DNC, the DCCC um, were favoring Hillary instead of being neutral. And I I mean, I thought obviously as a Bernie supporter, I thought that that was, you know, that was a pretty big story. Right. And the media just they weren't giving it the attention that I thought that it deserved. And I was very confused. Then when Trump won, I lost all all faith in mainstream media i sort of drifted away 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 and away from mainstream media and so when q came on the scene i was was, yeah probably i don't want to say perfect target because that removes any agency on my half but like i i was there i was here for it
0: can you tell us just a little bit about that the impact on that like what did your personal life look like were you were you losing friendships I know you brought your dad into the fold and, and I'd love yeah. to hear about that.
3: Yeah, so probably about the first half of while I was in QAnon, I was very socially isolated. Um, and I also had... A very chaotic mental state. Um, I've been diagnosed with epilepsy since I was a kid, so it's not really a problem. I'd only been diagnosed with ADHD like in December twenty sixteen, so I hadn't been that long to get on the correct uh, medication and amount. And I had yet to be diagnosed with bipolar too, so it was pretty chaotic. So I was spending a lot of time at home alone. Um, I was struggling to just. I was just trying to finish my degree. Um, I was struggling. To, I was just doing like one or two classes a semester, so I had a lot of free time. I. I used to just spend all day and all night just reading stuff about Q, conspiracies, decoding this and that and you know he you, you, you starts you off on a particular tangent and you like a, a particular path and you just go on a ridiculous tangent no one obviously I wanted to talk about it a lot but I didn't really have anyone to talk to my my Mom was like, you know, she she humours me, but she she doesn't care. She's busy. So um, the only person I had was my dad, and the thing is, we have nothing in common, um, except that we both independently came to the hobby of just talking about politics and economics and world events and current affairs. We just like doing that. So that was the only thing that we used to bond on. So we would talk for hours and hours and hours about it. Yeah, soon when my social isolation decreased, I um. I burned a lot. Like most, like ninety-five percent, I would say, of my friendships, and I had a lot of friends. That's not a brag. Like I don't have them anymore. But like it was just through my demeanor, my behavior, my inability to talk about anything but Q. I was agitated. I was anxious. I was aggressive. You know, it just I wasn't fun to be around.
1: What were your friends and family saying to you at the time, or what was it that that helped you? Away from being consumed.
3: With me, they, I didn't care what they said. I was wholly consumed by this conspiracy. Like I was frustrated that people weren't believing me. People weren't even trying to look at the most basic evidence, like some some video about Pizzagate or whatever. So then it's not a coincidence that as my mental health and social isolation improved, that I, I probably started thinking a little bit clearer and started questioning things that I had taken uh, without questioning before. So um, I got diagnosed with bipolar 2. My ADHD meds were good. And I I was going to uni uh, part-time. So I was getting more interaction. I'd met up with my friends. I was a little bit better. And I was like, I can't trust my thoughts or feelings anymore. On top of that, I can't trust the thoughts and feelings I have about not being able to trust my thoughts and feelings. It felt like the universe just sort of crashed in around me. There's are so many other ways I would have been manipulated that I have no idea about. No idea. I've never been more sure about anything in my entire life, right? And I was so sure and I could not, I literally could not have been more wrong.
0: I wanted to ask you about your advice to people who have loved ones who are lost to a conspiracy. What what should they do? What can they do?
3: You think I'm a good person to ask this? I'm actually not because my dad is, a, he, I converted into Q, he's still into Q. All right. I haven't found a way to get him out. Right. So if someone finds that out, let me know. But having said that, I have found that I think, I think it's important. I think if you focus on their behavior, forget about their belief. That doesn't explain why for the last month, you've been sitting on your laptop in the you know the study room, watching YouTube videos. If you do that, you distract them. They'll get out. Of, like they'll bring themselves back or they won't, but at least This way you'll have, you know, your loved one back.
1: So Jatart's recommendation there is to focus on someone's behavior instead of arguing with them on any given topic. Next, we're going to hear from YouTuber Edward Kern, whose real name is Carl Coriat. We're going to hear from Carl in a minute. But first, here's a clip from a video he posted on YouTube back in 2016, where he explains why some people continue to believe in conspiracy theories surrounding the 9-11 attacks in the U.S.
4: Fifteen years after 9-11, a devoted group of believers are still convinced that those buildings were brought down by controlled demolition. Here are seven reasons why these conspiracy believers are still believing. Number one, 9-11 dwarfed the human scale. People's inability to comprehend the collapse of three giant office buildings leads to astonishment. There's no way that they fell like that on their own. There must have been bombs or something in there. Number two, Hollywood-style plots and secrets are more enticing for most people than the mechanics of engineering disasters. Number three, once a person thinks that they possess a kind of special knowledge, it leads to an almost messianic desire to spread that knowledge. Number four, conspiracy believers have saturated YouTube and other forums with their material, making conspiracy belief a self-sustaining phenomenon. Number five, believers tend to limit themselves to information that they want to hear. They then reinforce each other's conviction that their beliefs are clearly true and important, even though the rest of the world sees otherwise. Number six, 9-11 is a thriving industry for groups like architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. Like any business, it's in their best interests to keep the belief system going with advertising, speaking tours, and so on. Number seven, science is hard. Knowledge of abstruse concepts are needed just to put things into context. It's much easier to imagine that there were bombs in the buildings, and that's why they fell down and went boom.
0: So that was a clip from Carl's YouTube channel. Carl himself believed that one of the buildings involved in the Twin Tower attack was actually a controlled demolition and not an attack at all. He believed this, but then he did realize it was a lie, and he came out of the rabbit hole. And now he's interested in the psychology behind why people are eager to believe these things. So we first asked him about how he fell down the rabbit hole.
4: Yeah, I, I was trying to think of uh, how it started. I don't believe I saw a YouTube video because I, the year was uh, 2007 or 2008. And I don't think YouTube had yet become the, the big uh, information, misinformation uh, juggernaut that it is now. It must have been just an article on a website or something. I really don't know how I came across it. But it was about Seven World Trade Center, which is one of the buildings in New York's World Trade Center that um, fell down on 9-11, 2001. And it was a 47-story building that caught fire, and it collapsed at about 5.20 p.m., so seven hours after the other... The main buildings had fallen down and a lot of people didn't know about it. And this article was saying that from an engineering standpoint, this could not have happened without control demolition. I immediately uh, got really interested in this idea that, you know, there's some kind of special knowledge that very few people know about that I just discovered by happening upon this article And I remember that it had 10 points, like 10 things that cannot be explained. And I went down, you know, one after another, and my eyes just got bigger and bigger. And I was like, you know, my God, this is really something, you know, I've got to start telling people about this. You know, I have a special knowledge and I got to look deeper. I got to find, you know, more evidence. I've got to rope other people into this. It's like, you want to tell as many people as possible. And I think that's the force that drives people to start making videos and, and trying to convert people over to their side is they feel like they have this special knowledge. It's it's really very similar. The, the evangelizing mindset of of having special knowledge and wanting to tell as many people as possible about it.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you out? What worked for you then?
4: Um, my brother happened to be visiting uh, in town for business, and he just kind of chuckled a little bit, and uh, he mentioned Occam's Razor—that you know, the least complicated explanation is probably the correct one. I just, all of a sudden, I just, you know, thought I'm a dumbass. But I did not say to him, you know, "No, you're wrong." You know, you got to read these articles, and I'm going to send you ten links. I didn't do that. I, I, I just, my world kind of collapsed for, for, for a minute. And I said, man, I'm a dumbass. You know, what was I thinking? of? And that was pretty much the end of it. But it was the beginning of me being interested in the psychology. And I became slightly evangelical in the other direction. I wanted to show people, you know, what actually did happen to that building.
0: What advice would you give to those people who have a loved one that, that just seems a bit lost right now?
4: The only thing I can say is, uh, you know, try not to be reactionary about it. Um, Try not to confront them in a belligerent way, because people have a tendency to get very defensive and uh, they want to fight back if you fight them. So, you know, I think asking questions is a really good way to do things. Kind of the Socratic method. Well, you know, if this is true, you know, what wouldn't this other thing be true? And, um, you know, what do you suppose, why do you suppose, for example, no structural engineers of tall buildings in the world, in the example of building seven, why is it that none of them have come forward and say that this collapse is mysterious or, or suspicious or anything like that to stimulate thought? Because people have to answer questions. You know, if you if you come at them belligerently, they don't have to respond to that, but questions, They kind of have to answer. For somebody like me, you know, I can try to put out information. I can try to ask questions. It's really frustrating because, you know, YouTube starts labeling things as misinformation. And of course, that just fuels the believers even more. Like now YouTube is part of the conspiracy. It makes it bigger. And those reactionary type of people, they want to fight back against that. Look at what YouTube is doing, you know. They cite the free speech business. A a skeptic takes the observations and kind of works with them as carefully as they can and as conservatively and, and try to draw conclusions from that. Whereas a believer, it just makes all sorts of assumptions. I mean, they do not want to try to find things that go against their belief. You don't want to ask those questions. And when I ask them those questions, they tend to evade the questions. They tend to say, well, what about this other thing? Um, it's all kind of like a cognitive dissonance psychology where you know, you're trying to escape from the thing that might pull you out of that rabbit hole. And uh, it's, it's wild, the, the human brain is wild.
1: Really fascinating what Carl said there about people believing that they have this kind of special knowledge and some good tips on how to talk to people who might be trusting unverified sources.
0: Yeah, so obviously conspiracy theories have always been around, but the way they spread now has obviously changed with everything being online. One person who really understands this really well is Mick West, who's the author of a book called Escaping the Rabbit Hole. Uh, So we talked to him about How the internet has influenced the circulation of mistruths.
5: Yeah well conspiracy theories have always been around you can look through history and you can always see older conspiracy theories going back hundreds even thousands of years if you really look into history but uh, the the modern kind of conspiracy era especially in the United States uh, revolves around the JFK assassination which was really something that really started the ball rolling in terms of people coming up with uh, seeking out explanations for things. And that's really what conspiracy theories are. It's people trying to find an explanation they don't believe the official story or the conventional narrative, and they're looking for something that fits their view of the world more. So when something significant happens, like uh, JFK being assassinated or the events of 9-11, or the the London attacks on seven seven and the, anything that's, that's very big, people want to find a explanation for it that sits well with them. Uh, over time, the they have changed uh, largely because of the influence of the the internet. Uh, before the internet, you know, in the early nineties and earlier, conspiracy theories spread more via things like books and articles in in magazines and things like that. It was uh, much much slower spread. But the advent of the internet, this especially became more of an issue when YouTube started uh, spreading conspiracy theories. Not that they do it deliberately, but uh, the YouTube algorithm for deciding what you watch next in your stream of videos for a while was very uh, influential in causing conspiracy theorists to spread because they, they gave you more of the same. So if you started going down a rabbit hole, the internet sucks you further and further down that rabbit hole. This is something, though, that has actually has changed in the last couple of years because YouTube has kind of recognized this as a problem. You know, partly they don't want uh, this type of content on on YouTube because the advertisers don't like it, but they also recognize it as a social problem and they're they're trying to they're trying to stop it. So they kind of changed their their algorithm and their ranking system so that it kind of there's less of this type of video on there now, and it doesn't so much recommend these videos anymore. But in a way, there was um, almost like a whole generation of people who have been affected by this YouTube algorithm and now are much harder core conspiracy theorists than they might have been had the algorithm not existed.
1: What should people maybe look out for in terms of of behavior if they suspect someone is beginning to get sucked in, if they're spending an unusual Mm -hmm. amount of time, maybe than average, online looking at conspiracy theories?
5: Yeah, well, it's, it's usually that, that they start uh, spending an unusual amount of time on something and they become very uh, single-issue focused. And if you see that kind of narrowing of the worldview, that's, that's definitely a danger sign uh, and you know, something that you, you want to try to do. Obviously, is try to expand uh, their worldview back, back again. But you know, that's something to look out for, is, is if their normal way of interacting in the world has changed and become narrower.
0: So let's just mm. say that's, that's me, for example, uh, how, would you, how would you advise me, you know, deal with this person in my life? What, what are the sort of steps or what's the best way of handling this?
5: Well, uh, you know, the, the first advice I always give to people is keep talking to the person. Don't think that you've got to go in there, guns are blazing and try to cure this person or help them or uh, you know, get them out of the rabbit hole. The important thing to do is to give them a lifeline back to reality. If it's someone who's a close friend or a family member or a loved one, then uh, you might be the only person who has that connection between reality and and them, someone who can actually give them that context. So what you have is a very valuable uh, position and you don't want to squander that by getting into some argument and uh, everyone going off in a huff. Uh, A lot of the time when people start bringing up conspiracy theories, like if your your relative brings up a conspiracy theory, it's very easy to get into an argument with them because these conspiracy theories sound so ridiculous. But from their perspective, they think you are being ridiculous. They think that uh, you you have been sucked in by the mainstream media and you've been brainwashed by the government into believing these things. And they think that they have all the answers and that you are being very uh, reluctant to deal with reality. So you've got this... This this disconnect between you and this other person. Uh, you've got to let them know that you respect them even though you disagree with them. You know, try to have some empathy as to where this person is coming from. And to have that empathy, you really need to understand where they're coming from, which is where where the conversation comes in, where you have to talk to them about what they understand and why why they think they understand it.
1: What do you think platforms, social media companies, our governments and civic society can do to to look at solutions to some of the problems of misinformation conspiracy theories in terms of spreading online
5: there's a number of things I mean, the simplest thing is to have less misinformation online but that's a problematic thing in itself because if you start censoring uh, what we we deem to be misinformation, then you've got a problem of people starting to not trust anything they see online because they think it's being censored. So they will move away from mainstream platforms like uh, like YouTube and Twitter, and they will move to alternative platforms that more closely uh, align with their beliefs. And this is something we're already seeing happening. Perhaps we also want to look at artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence you know, right now, yeah, it's hard to say what effect is happening on the conspiracy sphere, but it's something that is going to have a very big effect very soon because it's going to be very easy for AI to do a number of things. Like one is create fake videos, create fake audio. You know, deep fakes are getting incredibly easy to make now. So there's going to be a lot of that being used uh, to, to promote conspiracy theories. But we can also use AI to engage people online. Uh, that could actually give responses that would work better with that particular person. But you're probably going to get the opposite. You're probably going to get robots roaming the internet promoting this bad content, robots that will actually have conversations with people on Twitter and engage them and form relationships with them and modify their, their, their ways of thinking automatically on at scale. So it might be something that uh, we have to respond in kind if we can't actually get... You know, they uh, get rid of the robots. We have to deploy robots of our own. A lot of interesting technology just around the corner, I think, that we're going to have to deal with.
0: A little bit scary there from Mick West, author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, when it comes to the role of robots and AI. We're going to be looking more at solutions uh, when it comes to tackling misinformation in the final episode, where we'll probably touch on some of those issues again.
1: For people going through some of these issues at the moment with a friend or loved one, it can be really difficult if they're on their way or have have gone down this rabbit hole. So what support is there for families?
0: We spoke to Amanda Stanfield about this. Uh, She recently helped set up a Facebook group to help people come together, share stories and learn about how to deal with it all. And the group recently ran a spring clean initiative, encouraging people to stay off social media for a short period of time and reconnect with family members in the real world who are in these conspiracy situations. We asked Amanda why she wanted to help start the support group in the first place.
6: I consider myself extremely lucky. Um, I come from a very conservative background, but my immediate family has not really bought into kind of all of these different things that are going on. But... I have friends that I was having these conversations with who's, you know, their mom or their both of their parents or their siblings are like really falling down the rabbit hole. I saw people in my circle that I grew up really looking up to and respecting people that I considered extremely intelligent, like very logical people who were, had really kind of succumbed to this. And so I, it just kept gathering speech gathering steam and I think for me it really hit like right around the presidential election Um, and I just I'm not a big like I wouldn't call myself active on social media but I got to a point you know on Facebook particularly where I just decided I wasn't going to sit back and just read nonsense right that people were posting and I started engaging a little bit more and really just trying to put good information out there when there was so much bad. I don't want to call it a quick fix, but we wanted something we could do immediately, right? We were like, what can we do right now? And the Facebook group really made sense. We screen people who come in, we look at people's posts before they go up in an effort to try and keep the conversation positive and focused. I mean, the scale is small, you know, we're almost 400 members. Given the scope of the problem, it's it's a drop in the ocean. But as we go through the posts, and as we see people support each other, I think there's, there is real help happening. What kind of
1: situations and stories are people sharing? And how do you find people responding?
6: A lot of times people will immediately introduce themselves. They'll say, I'm so and so and like, my mom or my sister or my dad, whoever it is in their life, they will give a little snippet of their story. There is immediate response from the group, whether it's advice or just you're in the right place. Like we're here to listen to you. Like there's immediate outpouring of empathy.
0: I think there might be a lot more groups like yours that are set up all around the world trying to deal with the exact same issue. So from what you guys have learned, what tips might you give other people who are trying to set up a support group like yours?
6: It's, it feels so overwhelming on the outside, right? When you're looking at this problem, I think anyone who's concerned about it, anyone who's trying to do work in the space, at some point you feel completely overwhelmed and really helpless, even as someone maybe who doesn't have a direct connection to, to the problem. The, the key is just facilitation. People want to talk about this. They want to talk about it. They are looking for love and support. They're looking for opportunities to support others. I think that's one of the greatest parts of this group is other people are anxious to support those in similar situations. And so, you know, I guess my advice for people who maybe are starting a group like this or who are, you know, involved is just give people the platform and give them the tools, right? Like, our goal is to keep things focused and positive. And part of people feeling safe is feeling consistency. And and that's what we provide. And if you can do that for people, they will create a community. All you have to do is kind of provide that platform and provide a little structure. And I think it really happens organically. And, And that's I think that says a lot about the human nature of people is like, if you give them the opportunity to help each other, they'll help each other.
1: That was Amanda Stanfield, co-founder of a support group for families on Facebook. On the next episode of the Truth Matters podcast, we're going to be looking at the challenges in preventing the spread of misinformation online. We're going to hear from Ireland's newest star, CNN journalist, Donio Sullivan.
3: Now what we have through social media and failure of, of the moderation from these platforms is these huge communities now gathering and building online i just think that everything has has been taken up a few notches you know
0: we'll also be hearing from fact checkers editors and a free speech advocate on the need for and challenges with taking down and moderating false content
1: that's all coming up on the next episode of the truth matters podcast thanks for listening and if you found some of this interesting please do share